This morning as I was trying to prepare my mind for the message and everything, I, I realized we're getting very close to the end. Mark's gospel is very fast-paced. It's the, it's the shortest gospel account of Jesus, and, and we're going to see that it goes through today in chapter 15, and as it begins, we're going to see this all through chapter 15, that cadence we've talked about that we've seen over and over throughout this gospel account, that word chi, the Greek word chi, that gets translated and. It's like Mark is marching towards the end, and I was, I was thinking about this. Why does he, he move so quick? And I, 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 I don't know if this is Holy Spirit inspired or not, but I was praying about this and thinking about this this morning as I, as I was preparing, and I remembered this uh, fantasy book that I read years ago that was just an awesome story. I think Daniel's read it. The rest of you would probably go, this is trash. But uh, it was one of those stories, you pick it up, and, and it's kind of, I think this is how Mark's first audience would have approached his gospel account. It was one of those books, you read it, you read one, two, three, four chapters at a time, and you don't want to put it down because you're afraid the characters are going to move on without you. Have you ever picked up a book and read it, and you're like, what? I want to get back to reading that book. What's going on? Right? You almost, it was one of those things, this guy's, the book I'm thinking of, it's got a redheaded hero, so hey, already, you know it's good, Right? Well, I identified with that, and I, I, you don't see that as a redheaded guy. You don't see that very often, so it's a good book. And he's just telling this story of his life, and I, just, I remember telling my wife one time, I just I want to go back and finish this story because I want to know what happens next. And I imagine Mark's earliest readers, when they were hearing the gospel read to them for the first time, they wanted to know what happens next. And so Mark's writing for them, and this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, because you've got to know what happens next. And we see that going through, and I, I hope we get passionate about that when we come in and we're going through a book like this, and we're, we're hearing this, and we're understanding the scriptures and what God's saying through it. I want to know what happens next, amen? I, I get excited about it. What's Jesus going to do next? What's, what's Rome going to do? You know this thing, that, I don't know if you've seen this on social media this past week. A wife asked her husband how often he thinks about the Roman Empire. He said, every day. It's like all these men are coming out saying, I think about that stuff too. So my wife goes, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Literally every day, I'm a pastor. You know, the main thing that I talk about it happened during the Roman Empire. I say, well, okay, yeah, that's fair. But, you know, there, it's something that, that is exciting as we look at this and we get passionate about it and we understand what's happening. And, and what we see taking place in this text is today is, is just this, this great injustice that falls upon our Savior. This court, it's not the kangaroo court of Caiaphas's house. This is, this is the court of Rome where this is taking place. And yet justice won't be had in this courtroom. And we read this and we should be thinking, okay, so what happens next? What happens next? Well, we know what happens next. Where the way our text ends this morning, he delivered him to be crucified. And for the Christian, that's, that's not a source of stress. It's not a source of panic. That's a, that's a beautiful saying because we understand what that means for us, that this great injustice, this great horrible thing, this court case that is a fraud, that's the court of public opinion, 
that it leads to our being justified, that it leads to good things for for us. It's one of the most important, it's the most important thing that happens in all of human history where God's grace and his mercy meet his justice in this beautiful, rugged Roman cross. Will you stand with me as we read this morning, beginning in verse 1? And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You may be seated this morning. When we look at this text, the one thing you, you might note is that God's justice is not our justice. God's justice is not human justice, and for that we should worship him. For that we should praise him. His justice is far greater than ours. His justice is far deeper than ours. The accusations, the injustices of Jesus' trial will lead him to the cross where an even greater injustice will take place. You see, it's at the cross where our sins are placed upon the one who knew no sin. The punishment, the wrath that our sins deserve are poured out upon him. And meanwhile, because of his obedience, because of his cross, we receive mercy and grace. And perhaps just as great as those two things, like I said, we receive hope. Jesus is delivered to Pilate. Pilate will ultimately deliver him over to be sacrificed on the cross. It's almost as if Jesus is just being passed along on the waves of the public and, and he has no control over what's going on, but that's not the case at all. We know that God sovereignly orchestrating is orchestrating the events from behind the scenes. And we read this and we think of ourselves and we so badly, we want justice. We want justice in our lives. We want our lives to be fair. How many of you, as, as kids, how many of you would say, but that's not fair? Because even as children, we want fair. We want justice. 
But the Christian has to understand, the mature Christian has to understand the cross is a reminder that if life were fair, Jesus would not hang on that cross. We would. Or at the very least, Barabbas would. But God is just. So the cross is where Jesus must go. Now the trial of the Sanhedrin that we saw the last few weeks, that that took place in three different stages. And and the trial before Rome is going to take place ultimately in three different stages, though Mark doesn't cover all of it. There's going to be the interrogation by Pilate, the interrogation by Herod Antipas, which takes place in Luke 23. Luke's the only one who mentions it. And the final arraignment before Pilate that includes the, the release of Barabbas and the verdict of crucifixion. When we look at this from the outside, looking in, it's, it's the odds stacked against Jesus. The crowd will win. The injustice of public opinion will win. They are, they're going to decide his fate. That's the title of the message, the injustice of public opinion. And yet we know, we understand, because We've been reading through this entire book. We understand that not one single thing is going to happen in this passage today, these 15 verses, that a sovereign God does not allow. God's justice is not our justice. And we should worship him for that. We should be so thankful for that. We're reading in verse 1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Out of all the passages in the Gospel of Mark, in all the sermon preparation that I've done for this for almost two years now, that passage made me angry. That that just, it didn't sit right with me. And I'll tell you why in a moment. This takes place right at dawn. As soon as the sun is coming up, around 5 a.m., they are ready to scoot him on down to Pilate. The chief priest, the elders, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, they, they, they're going to hold this little consultation together. The council's going to decide, this little special council. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, this shouldn't be happening. What they should be doing is breaking up into pairs, the 71 of them breaking up two by two with the chief priest alone and deciding the verdict, discussing what should happen to Jesus. That's not what takes place. Instead, what's going to happen is they're all going to come together and they're going to say, now what's the best course of action for us to get the results we want from turning him over to Rome? That's what's happening right here. The Sanhedrin has him right where they want him and they want to make sure the perfect plan comes to fruition. So they huddle together and they begin to discuss their evil plan. Now since Jesus was a Nazarene and we know this from Luke's gospel since he was a Nazarene they should have taken him to Herod Antipas. Jesus was a Galilean. He was under Herod's jurisdiction. Instead, no, 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 no. That's not going to work. We can't do that. We have to take him to Pilate, to this man named Pontius Pilate. He's going to give us the best chance to get what we want. And this is the part that made me angry. They bind him with ropes. They bind him possibly even with chains. Yet there is no need for this. They're continuing to treat our Savior as though he's a common thug. 
as, as though he's a robber or an insurrectionist or a terrorist. And we think about this. This is how they're treating him. But that's not why they tie him up. This is what made me angry. They're, they're doing this for show. They have him surrounded by the temple guard. They have Roman soldiers just outside waiting. They were loaned. They were given. They have him outnumbered. They have him outgunned. It's, it's 71 men to one, if nothing else. And yet they bind him. Because they want him to look like a threat. They want Jesus to appear dangerous to Rome or to himself or to the public. It doesn't matter. He is dangerous. And yet they lead him like a lamb to the slaughter. John tells us they only go so far into Pilate's court. John 18, 28 says they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So in other words, they're not going to become unclean. They're going to make him become unclean. Oh, that kind of jives with the rest of the story, doesn't it? That he's taking upon this uncleanness upon himself. So they take our Savior and they lead him in before this man Pilate and they turn him over to Rome. He's no longer their prisoner, but the chains, the ropes, and everything else, they're trying to influence the verdict right out of the gate. They're trying to decide our Savior's fate. They've picked Pilate for this purpose. Pilate was not a nice man. Philo of Alexandria described him as a man of inflexible disposition, merciless as well as obstinate. If there was someone in the Roman government who would want Jesus dead and not make that big of a deal about it, Pilate was the route to go. They could not pronounce the death sentence themselves. They needed Rome to do that. And Pilate's the right guy to carry it out. He was in office at just the right time. And he was placed there by a would-be usurper to the throne of Rome. A would-be Caesar. That's the kind of friends that Pilate would keep. He was known to be harsh. He despised the Jews. In fact, the only reason he would come to Jerusalem would be so that he could keep the peace during the holidays. He's very much aware of Jesus, by the way. Because I'm sure the talk in the streets have been about this rabbi who's causing a disturbance with the Jews. But Pilate's hatred of the Jewish people is so well documented, Jesus himself even refers to something that, that Pilate did. In Luke's gospel, there were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? These were zealots who were opposing Rome and while they were performing sacrifices, Pilate had them murdered. To the Jewish person, this is blasphemous. And it makes them hate Rome all the more. The Jewish people do not love Rome. But if you know the gospel account, at some point they're going to say, we have no king but Caesar. Such is their hatred of Jesus. 
the entire ingredients of this courtroom, of Pilate's courtroom, it has all the ingredients for an unfair ruling. And he stands, Jesus stands now before a judge with an unfair temperament. And you add to that the fact that while the Sanhedrin com condemned Jesus for blasphemy, he now has to be tried under Roman law. And the idea of blasphemy just doesn't matter to them. They don't care about that because he's blaspheming the Jewish God, not a Roman God. So they have to come up with something else if they want Jesus to be killed. We go to verse 2. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. We have to remember here that every few years in this era that there would be a would-be Messiah that would rise up and try to fight back against Rome or try to overthrow Rome or raise up the Jewish people. We see this in the book of Acts. Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, actually talks about this in Acts 5. He says, For before these days Theodos stood up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. You see, most of these would-be revolutionaries, these would-be messiahs, they would rise up and they would build up their little armies and they would come against the, Roman, the local Roman patrol and they'd get mowed down. So they'd lose. They'd lose their credibility on top of everything else, they'd lose their lives. But they'd also have some that would come in and, and disqualify themselves by their teaching or by their lifestyle. So if the Sanhedrin can show to Pilate that Jesus had a serious following, well, Pilate would not want his influence to grow. So he's going to want him put down. But now Pilate stands alone with Jesus and he begins to question him himself. And he, he specifically asks, are you the king of the Jews? The emphasis is on the word you. He's saying, very matter of fact, is it you? Are you the man? Are you the guy? So Jesus, in his reply, he also emphasizes you. He says, you have said so. The NASB says, it is as you say. In other words, I am if that's who you're going to make me out to be. If Jesus is going to simply say yes, well, that would put Jesus on the same level as those would-be messiahs. So he's turned the question around to Pilate. Well, who do you say that I am? Huh. If Jesus says yes, Pilate's anti-Jewish enough that, well, that's, just going to solidify his hatred towards the Jewish people. If Jesus simply said yes, Pilate would have no opportunity to answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the same question we all have to answer, by the way. At some point in our life, who do you say that he is? And Jesus throws it right out to Pilate right here in the courtroom. Who do you, Pilate? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? We read in verses 3 and 4, And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. The chief priests begin to bring up their charges, none of which, I would add, include the charge of blasphemy. They don't include that. 
Luke actually tells us what the charges were, or at least three of them. Luke 23, verse 2 says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation. That's one. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's two. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's three. So he's misled the nation. He's forbidding tribute to Caesar. And he's calling himself a king. All of these combined would be treason. The problem is, Pilate knows who Jesus is. He's had his people tailing him all week too, probably. And he knows Jesus hasn't misled the nation. He probably is very aware of the time the the Herodians and the Pharisees came and began to ask him about paying taxes. And Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So he knows the truth that they're twisting his words. But that third accusation, he dares to call himself a king. This would cause the Romans' ears to perk up. Were it true, were this Jesus leading a rebellion, he must die. But Jesus clarifies to Pilate that though he is a king, his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to, might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate confronts him. He says, have you no answer to make? In the modern English, we'd say, do you not have anything to say for yourself? Do you not have anything important you might want to tell me at this time? Do you see how many charges they bring against you? Do you hear what they're saying about you? Do you have nothing to say in your defense? If you're keeping score, they've aimed three arrows at Jesus, three accusations at least, And he's making no defense for himself. Three to zero. And Jesus just stands there. The only noise he makes is the soft inhale and exhale of his breathing. Church, this does not happen in a Roman court. For the defendant to stand quietly does not typically happen. Pilate has likely never seen this before in his life. In a Roman court, for the accused to remain silent is tantamount to consent of all the charges leveled at him. Jesus is basically saying, I don't care if what they say is true or not. He stays silent. That's how Pilate would understand him anyway. Isaiah predicts this a couple of times. Isaiah 42, 1 and 2, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. There's no defense that Jesus is going to bring for himself at this point. Verse 5 says, But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Mark's literally writing here, his, his, if we were to take it word for word, he answered no longer nothing. That double negative there, it it emphasizes that Jesus is being absolutely quiet. You understand that to Pilate, someone who has dealt with this day in and day out for most of his career, this just confirms that this Jesus is innocent. Most people, when they're accused of something, even if they're accused rightly, they protest, they proclaim they're innocent. I worked in probation for six and a half years. Never met a kid that was actually guilty. 
according to the kid. And yet Jesus stands silent saying nothing. They've talked. They've had a one-on-one conversation, Pilate and Jesus. And Jesus doesn't seem like the arrogant would-be messiahs that Pilate's probably talked to in the past. He doesn't sound like a man who wants to be a replacement for Caesar. He doesn't carry himself like a king. His followers aren't surrounding the place with swords and and torches and pitchforks. He doesn't have a harem of women weeping at the entrance. He doesn't have henchmen trying to bribe anybody. Pilate stands amazed. The Greek word means he's astonished. He's marveling. Who is this man who stands before him? Isaiah says he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. He opens not his mouth. Something to Pilate just does not settle. It doesn't seem right. It's around this time, Matthew's gospel tells us that while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sends word to him. Pilate's wife said, I have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate wants to distance himself from this whole thing. And so he begins to think, and there is a loophole. He has it out. Maybe, just maybe, he can get this guy released. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. The feast, of course, is Passover. It's still a holiday. It's a holiday weekend. Rome would often do things like this, by the way, to appease the locals, to make everybody happy. It's kind of throwing them a bone, giving the little people a win. And perhaps... If the people do like this Jesus, if he really is that popular, if they revere him as a king, well, it's a safe bet that the populace would ask for his release. And then this whole dilemma would solve itself. It's in Jesus' favor. This sort of thing happens over Passover. But John tell, That's when John tells us, but Mark tells us they had to ask for it. They had to ask for somebody to be released. And they don't, not initially. Pilate has to offer it to them. John tells us that he said, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? In other words, there was this custom. Everybody's aware of it. Everybody's saying, staying quiet. They're hoping Pilate doesn't offer this. But he does. The option's on the table for Pilate. So he plays the hand he's dealt. Verse 7 tells us, And among the rebels in prison who'd committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Barabbas is a fascinating character, by the way. Very interesting guy. We don't know a whole lot about him other than what the Gospels tell us, but he was a freedom fighter. He's a nationalist. John John 18, 40 tells us he's a robber. He's a murderer. He's in prison. He's had his trial. In fact, he is set to go to the cross himself. By all rights, his story is over. His outcome is set. And yet now, like for so many of us, Jesus enters his story. And things begin to change. 
His name, Barabbas, it means Bar-Abbas, son of the dearest father. Son of the father. It's a pretty fascinating name for the guy who switches places with Jesus. The son of the father. Now many theorize that's not his real name, that Barabbas picks this, much like today somebody would say their name was John Doe or John Smith, something generic. It's a nonsensical name. It's there in order to protect his family because he's a rebel. He doesn't want any kind of uh, revenge to be carried out against his relatives. And so he says his name is Barabbas. In fact, Mark even says his name was called Barabbas, that, that that's not his real name. But the irony cannot be lost on us. His life is about to change forever. Verses 8 through 10 read, And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And the answer, he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Now normally, normally the person who would get released, it was somebody who was in there for something relatively minor. You know, somebody Barney Fife had arrested for jaywalking or something like that. Not this time. Barabbas, not Jesus, was the would-be revolutionary. Barabbas, not Jesus, was the real threat to Rome. Barabbas, not Jesus, was chosen by the Sanhedrin. Do you understand that? They pick him. They want him. He's everything that Jesus was not, and yet he's everything that Jesus was accused of. Pilate knows this. Pilate rightly perceives that it's out of envy these chief priests delivered up this Nazarene because it's out of envy they want him dead. They want him erased from the nation. Jesus had the love of the people. He truly did. The elders, the scribes, the chief priests knew it and they hated him for it. Look no, long, look no further than the last few days of Jesus' life. They, the people cheer as he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. They hang on every word as he teaches in the temple. They don't get upset when he cleanses the temple. It's only the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, who get mad that he, he disrupts their daily business. Sanhedrin fears the crowds because of Jesus. Pilate's not ignorant of that. Like I said, Pilate's good at his job. He's, he's kept tabs on the community. He's only coming to Jerusalem to keep the peace, the, the peace he will keep. And so he keeps his eyes on every would-be rioter, everybody who would stir up an insurrection. He knows this Jesus of Nazareth well. And so he knows all the more that these leaders who have no love for Rome who hate him and hate his being there, his mere being there as a Roman soldier is a thumb in their eye. So they're not turning Jesus over out of loyalty to, the, to him or loyalty to Caesar. He knows they have another plan and he, he understands it's because they, they hate him. They're jealous of him. But the chief priests stir up the crowd to have him released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? 
They stir up the crowd. The wording in the Greeks means they're, they're starting to cause a riot. The people are getting angry. The people around them are getting fed up. Remember, Pilate's job, keep the peace. The riot is the last thing he wants. He fears the crowd. He doesn't need a mob. People are about to riot over whether or not they can have a murderer or a carpenter released to them. Barabbas, who'd actually killed someone. Barabbas, who'd actually fought back against Rome. So he, he says to the crowd, well, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews then? It does not mean, by the way, that Pilate has accepted Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's actually using this to twist the knife a little in the chief priest's side. He's using that title to mock them, to try and provoke them so that they might slip up. He's insinuating that in his language, he's saying, do you want me to release Jesus too? In fact, if you're willing to have Barabbas released, are you willing to also have him released? Of course, this, this sets off the crowd. They cried out again, crucify him. It's the first time in Mark that word crucify really comes up. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. They want him not just killed, crucified. They want to send a message. You don't hang a man on a cross for the world to see unless you want to send a message to those who would follow him. The Roman historian Cicero says crucifixion is a cruel and disgusting penalty. It was the cruelest form of execution under Rome. Roman citizens, citizens themselves were spared crucifixion. It was so grotesque, so violent, so dishonoring. In fact, we know that's, that's why Paul was beheaded under Nero because he was a Roman citizen. He was spared the fate of the cross. And Pilate knows this too. Pilate knows how wicked of an execution that is. So he says, why? Why crucify him? What evil has he done? The word evil here is wickedness. What wrong, what immoral thing has this Jesus done to deserve such a horrible thing? Why do you hate him so much? That's what he's asking. He wants a reason for the penalty, but they won't give him one. Instead, they'll shout all the more. They'll become violent in their demand. Crucify him. Crucify him. You see, they've passed their judgment. The court of public opinion has reached their sentence. And they want Pilate to do his job and pass his so they can have what they want. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd... Released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Understand, he gives in to the crowd because he has to. If they're left unsatisfied, they're going to escalate this possibly all the way to Caesar himself. And that's the last thing Pilate needs for Caiaphas to go full Karen and ask to speak to the manager. So he releases Barabbas. He releases the murderer. 
the thief, the revolutionary, the wicked man. And Jesus takes his place. He has Jesus scourged, flogged, whipped, beaten. This is a common process, uh, part of the process of the crucifixion. Uh, it was also a penalty that was reserved only for slaves. And it's not as nice as the passion of Christ makes it look when Mel Gibson directed his movie. And it's not as nice as you've ever heard. You understand these were short leather strips with pieces of glass, bone, and metal woven into them. And, and you've probably heard, as I have many times, he was given 40 lashes minus one. He was given 39 lashes, beaten to the point of death. If, if they hit him with 40, he'd have died. How many, you've ever heard that? I have. And let me tell you, that's not true. That's the Jewish law. Rome had no limits. And they would have him tied to this post as a man stood here and here and here and here. And as you've seen those man, men drive the railroad spikes one after another, hitting the, the nail, hitting the railroad spike into the ground, these men with their whips one after the other would beat him to the point of death. In fact, many people didn't survive the scourging. They didn't survive the whippings. And yet Jesus somehow does. They pull back. And yet he's beaten to within an inch of his life, flesh and bone exposed. And he took the place of the wicked man and took that beating. He took my place and took that beating. He took your place, he took our place and took that beating. And soon he will take the cross as well. And yet church, through it all, through every yelp of pain he had to have let out, through every moment of anguish, through every tear he had to have cried and suffering, not a single thing caught him off guard. Not one thing surprises him. He knew this was coming. Ten hours ago, he prayed in the garden that this cup could pass from him. He could barely stand as he prayed under such duress. And he knew that Pilate, the crowd, the beating, everything is coming and he accepts it. And he will endure it because of one thing. The writer of Hebrews tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him was not my pretty face. It wasn't us. It was obedience to the Father. That's the joy he felt. That he would sit in the Father's presence. David, speaking of this moment, prophesying of this moment in Psalm 16, he says, My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is the joy of doing the Father's will. That's what carries him through it all. 
It's the love of the Father that puts him there. It's the love he had for his creation, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That whoever believes, that's the thing. Whoever believes in him. In a sick twist of fate, the son of the father is released so that the son of the father may be crucified. Justice is miscarried so that justice may fall on the son of God. And we have to remember that God's justice is not our justice because it's something so much greater, so much deeper, so much lovelier than we could ever fathom. I'm going to move to close in a moment and ask the worship team to come back. But please know this. This is God's plan of salvation. And it has been since before time existed. Pilate asks, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? That's what he said to Jesus in John's gospel. And Jesus replies, you'd have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. Peter's going to preach soon to the city of Jerusalem. He's going to say, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God allows that injustice. Because for us to be forgiven, there has to be an atonement. There has to be something that substitutes in our place. And the only thing good enough, and the only thing pure enough, and the only thing holy enough is the Son. Church, you have to understand we need His justice. We need that atonement. And we need to be reminded of it time and time again. Whatever your past, whatever you're coming from, whatever your, your sin struggles now, the things that everyone knows, the things you try to hide, God's mercy extends to those too, even today. If you'll receive it, if you believe it. Today we're going to close in a worship song and I'm going to turn it over to the worship team, but I would challenge you that if you're here and you're saying, I need that, then I challenge you, find a place to pray. Find someone to pray with you. We're going to close in a song and a dismissal of prayer. But take your time. His justice is so much more than we understand. And church, to be frank, it's so much more than we deserve.